You're listening to Irish Radio Canada's Home and Abroad, and no matter what part of the world you're in, you will have heard the music of Brendan Graham. And you, would, you may not have known it was the music of Brendan Graham, because it has been performed by so many artists in all areas of the world. And Brendan is a prolific songwriter. He's also a writer, and most important of all, he's Irish. He's based in County Mayo. Uh, for which he has a deep love, and I have the honour of being able to have a chat with Brendan, and indeed, Brendan, I am honoured that you would take the time to come along for a chat. Not at all, Austin. You're very welcome, and thanks for the great introduction, and uh, I hope I live up to it during the interview. Oh, Brendan, you've lived up to it for so many people, um, and, you know, when we play a little of your music later on, uh, they're instantly going to recognise, uh, and will have sung along to the few pieces we can fit in. Um, but you yourself, you're, um, you, you are a proud Mayo resident. I won't say you're a Mayo man. You're a proud resident. But originally, a bit like you're like me, you're nomadic because your dad, like mine, was in the bank. So where do you claim you were born in Tipperary? I was. I was born in, in Nina, or as they say in the BBC, Nina, uh, but it's the same place. <laughs> Uh, uh, my dad was, uh, as a young man, was in the bank there and met my mother, whose family had the local sort of sweet shop across from the bank. So he used to be in and out there. And um, then he he played rugby for the Nina Ormans and captained them when he was 21. And they won the Munster Junior Cup, which was a big thing because, they, you know, they were all the great Cork teams uh, carry on and uh, all of that so uh, so I don't obviously remember that and, and then we moved to Port Arlington in Leash, you got moved every four years, it was like being the police sergeant I think so that you didn't develop uh, you know relationships in, in, in any of the towns and then we went from Port Arlington in County Leash in the Midlands down to Castle Island in Kerry where um my dad again got involved in rugby, in reviving the Castle Island uh, rugby team, along with Mick Doyle, uh, senior, who was the father of Mick Doyle, who played for Ireland, coached Ireland, and the father of Tommy Doyle, who also played for Ireland. So, um, and, and in Castle Island, my big memory of it was I was um, schooled by the legendary uh, Con Hulhan at night, uh, giving grinds in mats. And Con's, uh, I hated maths. And uh, Con, I made that known to Con. I was maybe 12 or 13 at the time. And he said to me in his beautiful mellifluous Kerry accent, and he said, boy, don't worry about the maths. All you need for maths is a form of sly cunning. <laughs> he said, literature is the thing. And I never forgot that. And I wrote to him um, in more recent years I didn't know he was very sick and I just wrote to him saying you know I've always remembered what you said to me all those years ago and thank you for the wisdom of that and apparently his uh, partner got in touch with me to say that he'd received or she had received the letter the day before Con died and read it to him in the hospital and the day he died, she went back in again, and uh, he said to her, read that letter again to me. 
and she did and uh, she told me and he smiled and that was the last thing he ever said so one wonders how these things happened because I'd lost a little bit of contact with him over the years you know I'd been on the move in Australia England and Con was in Dublin and I don't know what prompted me to write at that time I didn't know he was ill uh, so I, I've met up uh, recently with, with the, the, the lady Harriet Duffin and uh, we had a great chat about Con and his life he was an extraordinary man a poet a brilliant writer so, Brendan, at that age, when someone like that has that much influence and it's always it's kind of subconscious, you don't realize the influence somebody has, where and when did you feel that the pull was towards art, the arts, towards writing and towards music? Well, there was, a, you know, none of us float on our own. There are always uh, inspirational characters in our lives in the past and and. In, in, in current times that help give us space and help us and I had one other uh, very inspirational person in my life who was a priest called Father Henry Flanagan uh, a Dominican priest in Newbridge College where because we were moving towns every few years my, my dad sent me there to have some stability and uh, he taught English and he taught music and he was an extraordinary man, and I remember all I was interested in in school was sport, uh, rugby, basketball, and the English writing the English less, uh, essay every week. And we'd sit in the class, and this priest, Father Flanagan, who was t- very bald, he was known as the coot, he was as bald as coot, he would come in and he'd sit up on a, one of the desks and he'd have your copybook and he'd skate it across the, the classroom down to you so that it landed on your desk. And he gave out A pluses or A minuses or A's or B's or everything. And to me, apart from beating Turnure or Black Rock in rugby in the week, the highlight of the week for me was getting an A plus from the coot for my English essay. And he'd write stuff on it like, your opening is like the opening of a Tchaikovsky overture. You know, stuff like that. And uh, so he was very inspirational. And when I left school and moved away, I started writing bits of poems. And I'd send them to the coot. And he'd come back and he'd say, yeah, keep writing, keep writing all this superfluous uh, surface stuff out of yourself. So he was a great uh, inspiration to me. So I suppose that was there. And I started writing songs at night and at weekends. Um particularly when I came back from Australia in the early 70s. Um, I remember, I don't think we had a television, but I remember we were in Ballinasloe then, which is where you come from and your dad comes from, and your dad worked in the National Bank in Ballinasloe just before my dad came there and worked in the National Bank in Ballinasloe, which is extraordinary. I've only found this out in the last number of days. But I was walking up to town in Ballinasloe and there was an electrical shop and a crowd gathered outside it watching the, the television on display inside in the shop. And it was the Eurovision Song Contest. And something hit me and I said, one of these days I'm going to write a song that will represent Ireland in the Eurovision Song Contest. And I had no idea how or how to go about it around. So that was really my first step into the world of songwriting. 
Bringing it back to Newbridge, uh, Brenda, uh, in Garbley, we used to have musicals. Did you have the musical in Newbridge and did you participate? Yeah, there, I mean, I'm, I'm, I wasn't a great singer then and uh, time has not improved my singing. Uh, the, the, the well-known singer Cathy Jordan from Dervish once described my singing on demos as a kind of a strangulated version of Tom Waits. <laughs> and I think she meant it as a compliment. <laughs> so, yeah, I was in the choir in Newbridge. The Coos looked after the choir. And, uh, yeah, there were some... Uh, I can't really remember the musicals. But uh, I was there at the same time as Christy Moore, who you have a connection with as, as well through... Um, your your family, your dad, and I used to play in the second row of the Junior Cup team with Christy Moore, and he was a hard man to get your arm around even back then. <laughs> and, and I'd then say had, I'd say he was a big man to push as well. That I'd say you were a strong second row. Well, we were. Well, I was skinny, uh, uh, you know. Um, so between us, I suppose it worked out okay. And Donald Lunny was another. A student of of the coot of Father Flanagan at that time in Newbridge, they were both day boys, and I was a boarder. So, uh, so the coot had quite an influence. Christie would say it, and Don Lunny would say it that this this particular Dominican priest, Father Flanagan, had quite an influence on um, both of them, and indeed on on me. So, uh, I always like to remember the people in life that have had uh, an influence and uh, an inspiration and hopefully repeat, be able to repeat that myself with other people, pass it on. And bringing it back to Newbridge as well, because at that time when I was a, a boarder in Garbley, and I think I was sent to Garbley for a slightly different reason than you might have been sent to Newbridge, I think my father felt it might put a bit of structure on me, but... Um, <laughs> I'm not telling the whole story there now, Austin. <laughs> <laughs> it's not my story to tell, it's yours. But, um, you know, when we got up in the morning, there was uh, we had to get down to the chapel, and then at night there was going to the chapel. And I know people have um, asked, and it, it, that you have obviously been very influenced by spirituality to the extent that in, within your writing, uh, there's a, a depth that reaches into the soul. Where did, had you that kind of structure in Newbridge? No, I was actually, uh, I mean, you, you did, you know, there was Mass in the morning and there was evening devotions and all of that. I wasn't particularly taken by it. In fact, I was quite rebellious in, in Newbridge and uh, led, uh, uh, I remember at one stage, a single line march around the, the senior tennis court for something or other. So, no, uh, I, I wouldn't have that awareness back then. Uh, now, I did enter the priesthood for a short spell, six months after I left school, but I just found out that I'd never, I'd never make it to Pope level, so I decided to leave. <laughs> but I'm not aware, and I wasn't aware of that developing in my writings in latter times. You know, I'd be interested in nature and... I'd have maybe a sort of a pantheistic view of life that the divine is in everything, in, in other people and in nature. And um, I don't knowingly write about spiritual things. It's stuff just seems to happen in the writing process and it comes out and other people 
see that kind of uh, dimension uh, to it. Uh, but of course, in latter years, as as one gets on and uh, nearer the exit gate, uh, you reflect more on life and death, and you know, is there something beyond those kind of issues? So, in the very recent time, I'm talking about the last four or five years, I am beginning to write songs that deal uh, more with these issues and and more, if you like songs that are expressions of myself rather than writing songs about things like if I write about Anymore and Ellis Island and uh, stuff like that you know so uh, yeah my definitely my writing has changed over the period over the time I'm not aware of any particular event and I'm not aware that um, I purposely set out to write songs within that area and of course all of my songs are not with don't have a spiritual dimension. And what I'm referring to, of course, uh, in, is the one that is probably, um, as it is described, it's one of the most successful songs in the history of popular music, which is You Raise Me Up, and it has been recorded in more than 40 languages by over a thousand artists. We'll take a short break and we'll play that. What and where did that come from, or what, what was the inspiration there? <laughs> well... You know that Sammy Kahn, the famous American songwriter who wrote loads of hits for Frank Sinatra and Dean Martin and all that, when he was asked the question about what came first, the words or the music, his answer always was, uh, it was neither, it was the phone call. <laughs> That's exactly what happened with You Raise Me Up. Um, it, it'll, next year, now it'll be 20 years since I wrote, I, I only wrote the lyrics, a, a Norwegian composer called Ralph Loveland wrote the music. And I had my second book uh, published by HarperCollins, um, the second of a trilogy, and we might talk more about that. And I was busy, you know, promoting, getting radio, and I got a call from the violinist, Vanula Sherry, who is one half of the mainly instrumental group Secret Garden, the other half being Ralph Loveland, the composer and uh, piano player. And I knew Fanula, you know, not not well, but I knew her and was aware of her. And she rang me, and uh, we were living in Dublin at the time. And she said, oh, Brandon, uh, we have a new album coming out, mainly instrumental album, uh, they might have one or two songs and the rest of the instrumentals. And she said, we have this melody and we wondered, would you listen to it and see if you could come up with lyrics? And at the time, I'd actually stopped writing songs because books are very demanding and all-consuming. And I, in a moment that proved to be a significant moment in my life, I said to her, well, where are you, Fanula? And... Uh, I said, if I could come and listen to it now, I will. And it turned out uh, they were about 10 minutes from my house in Dublin. So I went around, listened to the melody. My first reaction was, and I said it to them, well, that's quite like Danny Boy, uh, melodically. So they said, well, you know, it would be influenced by Irish traditional music. So I sat and I made a few notes, then went home that same day, and by midnight... Don't ask me where the idea came from. My, they were calling the instrumental uh, silent story, as if there was a story inside the instrumental. And, uh, oh, the other thing was that it wasn't going to go on the album as an instrumental. Um, 
they had recorded 19 songs or so and this was one of the ones that wasn't going to go on it so uh, Ralph Loveland thought well it might work with lyrics hence the call to me so I got the title um, somehow or other listening to the track they gave me and uh, I tend to start songs with the title and write the chorus and then I have somewhere for the verse to go to so by midnight I had the title, the chorus, and a kind of a shaky enough first verse. So I rang them and said, look, do you want to come over and have a listen and see if you like what I'm doing? So the two of them came over, and I warbled the uh, the lyrics over the violin track that I had, which was in a key much too high for me anyway. But they seemed to get the idea. So that was it. Then uh, over the next fortnight, uh, and I have all my notes, uh, I tidied up the first verse, changed a little bit of the chorus, and did the second verse. Uh, and that was in May, June uh, 2001. So it was purely random, Austin, how the whole thing came about, just as as often in life. There was no great plan or no conquering the world uh, notion there at all. It was just get this song finished and get it out there. So it went on their album, and uh, uh, and the rest is history. Oh, and why you recently recorded it yourself? Oh, yes. Well, uh, as I as aforementioned, I'm 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 no singer, and uh, when we got into these very strange times and. Uh, troubling times of, of, of COVID, like most people, I'm thinking, is there something I can do to help in any way? And I was casting around in my mind and I couldn't come up with anything to perform. I'm not, uh, I'm not a well-known figure. You know, the songs might be, but I tend not to sort of get out in that sort of uh, whole circus and, and so on. And I couldn't come up with an idea of what I could do that might help. Um, so I'm working on an album with the singer Kathy Jordan. Um, she's doing a solo album of uh, uh, of my songs. And the question came up about would she record You Raise Me Up or not? And we all sort of thought, well, there's something like fourteen or 1,500 versions out there at the moment. There's not much point in doing a new version unless it's different. So the idea came up of her singing some of it and me speaking some of it interspersed with the singing. And we went into the local church in Balbriggan, uh, just outside Dublin, to do it. And anyway, uh, it was decided not not to proceed with it. But I had actually recorded the whole lyric so that the studio engineer could take whatever he wanted. And that was that. And then uh, we're working with this uh, marvellous uh, piano player called Fergal Murray, uh, who normally plays with Camilla Sullivan and has toured with Celtic Woman, etc. And unbeknownst to me, Fergal took away my spoken version of it and he put a piano accompaniment to it. Not the original uh, melody that Ralph Lawson had written, but just the piano accompaniment. And he sent it to me. And uh, all of us thought, oh, this is interesting. So then I approached Medicine Sans Frontiers, the um, Doctors Without Borders, with who I've, I've sort of done a little bit of 
work with before and a bit of help. And I said to them, look, I have an idea to record this, put it out there, put it up on YouTube, get a video made, um, and ask people if they like it or even if they don't to contribute to the great work you're doing in across the world in something like 70 countries on the COVID front line and in some of the poorest countries in the world. So they said it's a wonderful idea and thank you very much. So I made the recording and it's up on YouTube under You Raise Me Up, spoken word version, Brendan Graham, and people can go there and look at it and uh, hopefully contribute to the work that Medicine Sans Frontier do. And this is an ideal opportunity for them to invite them to make a contribution, and we will share. Yeah, uh, I mean, Medicine Sans Frontier, they operate... Uh, they operate, you know, in some of the areas of the world where there's great conflict, but they operate on both sides of the conflict. They don't care about the ideology. They just want to help people who are suffering. So, for example, in Yemen, uh, uh, they're working there on both sides of the, the conflict. They have built the only hospital in Aden. And, in fact, I saw a news report about it recently where the locals said if it wasn't for Medicines on Frontier to come in, and help, and, and, and there would have been no hospital. And the doctors uh, are from all over the world. They're from Ireland, they'd be from Canada, they'd be from various countries. They go out, put their lives at risk to help those who are among the poorest and most possessed in the world. So it's, a, it's an incredibly worthy cause. So um, if any of your listeners do go onto YouTube and listen to this, there's a direct link to the Medicines on Frontier website where people can contribute it's, it's not anything to do with me it goes straight to Medicines on Frontier so. share that your version with the listener here and uh, we'll be back and we're going to talk about your writing uh, when we come back after Brendan Graham sp- and the spoken version of You Raise Me Up you are listening to Irish Radio Canada When I am down And oh, my soul so weary When troubles come And my heart burdened be Then I am still And wait here in the silence Until you come And sit a while with me You raise me up so I can stand on mountains. You raise me up to walk on stormy seas. I am strong when I am on your shoulders. You raise me up to more than I can be. There is no life, no life without its hunger. Each restless heart beats so imperfectly. But when you come, and I am filled with wonder, sometimes I think I glimpse eternity. 
you raise me up so I can stand on mountains. You raise me up to walk on stormy seas. I am strong when I am on your shoulders. You raise me up to more than I can be. You raise me up to more than I can be. Welcome back to At Home and Abroad on Irish Radio Canada. We're having a conversation with the songwriter Brendan Graham, but also the author Brendan Graham. And uh, I want to focus on the author, Brendan Graham, here in this section. Brendan, you mentioned in the first segment there how you were greatly influenced in Newbridge and your writing was being encouraged. You put pen to paper and you've produced uh, the trilogy. Tell us about your, your writing. Yeah, well, again, it was this was kind of random. The writing came out of the songs. Uh, firstly, I'm I'm a songwriter and a writer by default. I was I'm an industrial engineer by profession, but I was made redundant in, when was it, uh, 1993, or around about then. So at the age of 48, I had no job <laughs> and no income. Um, and I had been writing songs at night and at the weekends, and, you know, with with uh, some success. So um, in 1994, I wrote a little song called Rock and Roll Kids. Well, I wrote it before that, but it happened to win the Eurovision Song Contest for Ireland. So I began to earn some money. And then in 1996, I wrote another song called The Voice, which also won the Eurovision Song Contest. So uh, I was beginning to get a bit of interest from uh, music publishers in London. And... I was in London at a meeting. It was at the time when music publishers fated you and brought you out for long lunches of a Friday that went on, on from lunchtime into sort of Friday evening. Now you'd be lucky to get a bottle of Coca-Cola and, and a sandwich when you go for meetings. Uh, but uh, and, and during the meeting, um, I, was, I was working on a particular project I think for Christmas uh, the publishers the music publishers asked me uh, you know what are you working on now and it happens that I was working on a sequence of songs that had this character um, this female character that seemed to be set back in the mid 1800s in the time of the great famine in Ireland I didn't understand how it happened at all but there was this character and I'd written a few songs um, to do with the time of the famine and uh, this character seemed to be speaking through me which was bizarre Um, and uh, so the music publisher seemed kind of interested in that and uh, as they said the potato famine I said well it wasn't the potato famine you you lot you Brits actually have a, had a lot to do with uh, what happened there was potato blight but you lot stood by and let our people suffer so uh, I think the wine stopped being offered around after that <laughs> so, so I, I came back to Dublin and I got a call the next morning from um, the publisher of Warner Chapel uh, Music 
And they said, could I be back in London on Friday morning uh, in the boardroom of HarperCollins and to tell HarperCollins the story I told them? And I'm thinking, what the heck is this all about? And and by the way, could I send over uh, an outline of the story? And I had nothing written. I had no intention of writing a book. And here I was going into one of the biggest uh, book publishers in the world. So I stayed up for about three or four nights uh, and days and wrote out a 15-page synopsis of the story, just stream of consciousness around this woman and her life during the famine period. Uh, went back to London, left my uh, glasses in the taxi cab from the airport so I couldn't read what I'd written. So up to the boardroom of HarperCollins, nine people sitting around it, off you go, tell us your story. So I told them the story, and at the end of it, they offered me a book deal. <laughs> Just like that. I had no agent. I'd never written anything longer than an essay. And the first book was called The Whitest Flower, and um, it took me two years to research and write. came out in 1998, just before Christmas, and to my great surprise, it ended up at number two on the bestsellers here, behind Maeve Binchy. So that was as good as a number one. Uh, And then they offered me um, another two-book deal, so I was off to various parts of the world with HarperCollins, Australia, HarperCollins in Canada. And I did some readings there and book signings. And uh, there was a good chunk of the first book and the second book set in Canada. Uh, The first book dealt with uh, Grosseal, which was the quarantine island for um, the immigrants coming in from Ireland. And uh, I dealt with that and how well Canadians received the Irish. And then the second book was set in Boston, but the whole part of it then in uh, Montreal. And then the third book was set in um, between Boston and the Civil War and the Irish who uh, fought on both sides of the Civil War. So that was it. Again, another chance thing that fell into my lap, thankfully. And uh, so there it was. That again coming out, I guess, what was showing when you were 13 years of age and somebody noticed that you needed to, I suppose, well, in one way, well, you didn't write the poetry out of yourself or the the light stuff. You you eventually came back to what somebody else had noticed you had in you. I suppose that's it. Sometimes we're 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 not great at uh, sort of looking at ourselves uh, as other people see us in all sorts of ways, you know. And I suppose some people must have noticed something. But the thing with HarperCollins in uh, in London, um, I mean, it was just uh, just bizarre. And I remember when I was telling story to that group of eight people around the big boardroom table, I had this strange experience, this kind of out-of-body experience, where I was in the corner of that boardroom watching myself telling the story. And I knew before I finished it, they were going to offer me a book deal. The managing director of, of HarperCollins in the UK, uh, a lovely man called Adrian Bourne, stood up at the end, and I remember he was dressed in a beautiful pinstripe suit, and I think he had a, a, a dark-coloured uh, handkerchief in the pocket, and uh, 
we, we've been friends ever since, and he said to me, that is a stunning story, we'd like to talk to you. And that was it. I had no agent, no intention of writing books. I was trying to get songs away. and uh, But I'll never forget that. And then, of course, I had to I had to write a chapter for them first. And then they came to Dublin and offered me uh, a book deal. And, and then I was sort of fully clothed, jumping into the water, <laughs> hoping to get to the far shore of finishing the book. And out of the book then, also, I mean, that research, I would imagine... Isle of Hope, Isle of Tears was formulated. Well, I be well. Uh, Isle of Hope, Isle of, Isle of Tears was about a later period, uh, which was any more eighteen ninety two going to Ellis Island. But I had become interested in history, and I went right throughout Canada and, uh, and the United States uh, researching um, the background because I wanted the books to be as as true to the period and the people who suffered as it could possibly be. And I, I did have the good fortune to have a couple of friends who are professors and, and historians who read the books for historical accuracy. But I also was interested in the songs of the Civil War and how songs travel from here to America. And some songs actually became adopted by both the North and the South, the same songs uh, during the war. And I did in, in one... Uh, in one museum, I saw a top ten of American Civil War songs, um, and the number one was uh, Thomas Moore's uh, The Last Rose of Summer, and I thought that was extraordinary. So yes, so I started to write songs about history. Um, I wrote this song after my first visit to the United States in 1993, I think it was, to Ellis Island, and the whole story of Annie Moore um, so I wrote that song, I Love Hope, I Love Tears, and had the extraordinary um, gift of being asked to come to America and be present when Annie Moore's descendants found at last where she was buried and erected a headstone to her. And there I was standing by the graveside with the Irish tenor Ronan Tynan singing the song I'd written about Annie Moore to her, if you like. And uh, that's one of those moments I'll, I'll never forget. But then, yes, I've written other songs like Orphan Girl about the, the young women that uh, were sent from Ireland to Australia and uh, other songs to do with, you know, Irish history. So a little bit different from some of the spiritual type songs mm -hmm. uh, I write. Right. We're going to share Isle of Hope, Isle of Tears. We'll come back and... I want to cover some of the other songs and again the Canadian connection because you have uh, one done for you wrote for our 150th and Sean Keane, a good friend of mine recorded that and this yeah. is Isle of Hope, Isle of Tears The Irish tenors did a very different kind of version which they sang at Ellis Island and Martin Sheen introduced it
And welcome back. You're listening to our show, The Candles Home Abroad, and that was Isle of Hope, Isle of Tears. And um, we're chatting with Brendan Graham, who penned that. And Brendan, the music for that, uh, well, you say lyrics are your strong point. Where the, the music for that? Mostly I write uh, the words on the music, so that's my own music. And uh, um, But obviously if I work with composers, they're sending me uh, music and I would write lyrics to it and then sometimes I co-write so I do some of the lyrics and some of the music 
and then um, an odd time I've actually written the music to somebody else's words. So I'm very open as a songwriter to all the kind of approaches and the challenges. So yes, so that that I'll have hope. Um, I got the idea leaving America on the flight back to Ireland. I scribbled down the whole sort of sense of the story and got back here to the piano and then worked it out and on my piano and I'm looking at it I still have a statue of Annie Moore to this day because uh, I she's, she's, she was another source of my inspiration as I say about that song I just kept out of the way and Annie wrote the song so I keep her here there's a little statue which is a replica of the statue in Cove in County Cork of her leaving and also uh, there's uh, now in that statue she has her two brothers and there's a similar statue in Ellis Island of her arriving there with her two brothers and by the Irish uh, sculptor uh, Jenny Reinhardt so uh, I got this statue from from, from Jenny and uh, I, I keep it there So the Coastal Labrador and Sean's uh, one for the 150th and that was like 2017 uh, Yeah the coast of Labrador. Well, uh, this was uh, a co-write. Um, the, the wonderful um, Tipperary musician uh, Dennis Carey, who plays with the Brock Maguire band, has written some absolutely gorgeous uh, melodies. And uh, he got in touch with me to know could we do something together. And I was very taken that he had asked me. And uh, so he sort of said to me, you know, pick um, any of the melodies you like. And so I said, fair enough. So. I heard this melody um, uh, that he'd written and uh, he had written some pieces about Newfoundland and that whole area of Canada. He had some connections with it. So um, um, as it happened, again, uh, Canada 150 was coming up when when, um, that, that important date in Canadian history was being celebrated worldwide. So I thought, well, why don't you know, I have a great growl for Canada, and you know, and what happened in the history there. And I thought, well, why don't I try and write something that uh, acknowledges the link between Ireland and Canada? So, again, I got to thinking and looking up some of the history, and I was fascinated by the history of the southeast of Ireland, the cod fishermen who went out from that Waterford, part of Tipperary, Wexford, who went to the east coast of Canada fishing and would catch the cod and come home again. But then of those who went and stayed and married into the local community over there. And I also came across um, something that I hadn't previously known, was that at one stage back in those days in the 1700s or wherever I can't remember the exact dates now the Shannon River had frozen over and it was reported in some of the newspapers here that hurling our national sport was played on ice on the Shannon River and I thought that's interesting and then I read about some of these fishermen who went to Canada to stay to bring who brought their hurling sticks with them and played hurling on ice. And there's some, at least anecdotal evidence, that the hurling on ice developed into hockey on ice. And as you know, in in 
in Irish, the 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 word there's the puck p u c for uh, puck puck in the the round the slit of the hurling ball, and in in ice hockey, international sport, there the puck is uh, you know a different shape. It's sort of flat and round, and uh, I just thought that was an interesting kind of connection. So I tried to work all that into the song about the going to Canada, the um, the hero in the song getting married into one of the local communities there, um, them having a child and uh, him being taught to play hurling on ice. So that's that's really, I suppose, the the, the, the nub of the song. And then we had the honour of uh, launching it in Waterford in the beautiful town hall there, which was built by the money that the cod fishermen brought home or earned from cod fishing on the coast of Labrador and Newfoundland and uh, uh, the Lord Mayor and Sean Kane came and we did a little piece of around a number of my songs I'll Have Hope, I'll Have Tears to do with America uh, Orphan Girl to do with Canada, uh, Australia and the coast of Labrador to do with uh, Canada so and Sean of course you couldn't ask for a, a better interpreter of a song than Sean Kane. Brendan, a bit like myself, like even though you might be, I suppose, um, at that stage of life where people would say this is where you put your feet, the, the slippers on and you put your feet up in front of the fire and you sit back and relax. You're, you're, not, you're not doing that, are you? I'm, la- I'm laughing at <laughs> No, uh, no, I, I'm in, as, as Dylan Thomas might say, I'm in my 76th year to heaven. And uh, I hope when St. Peter throws down the old ladder for me to climb up it, that I'll have a, I'll have my notebook in my hand and a pencil and be writing a song about the ladder to paradise or something like that. <laughs> but you have, a lot, you have a lot of projects going on at the moment, including... I have. Well, it's, it, it, the great thing about this business, uh, if I can call it, of songwriting is that there's no gender bias and there's no ageism. So it's all down to what you can do and what you deliver. So obviously at my age, 99.9% of the people I'm working with are a lot younger than me. And it's never about, you know, that old fella on the side of the mountain down in Mayo. It's about, you know, um, can I come up with a song and work with them and so on. And uh, I'm lucky. I'm lucky that I'm in that kind of, of work that allows for that. So, yes, so I have a number of projects on the go at the moment. Just finished a, a gorgeous project uh, in Norway, which I wasn't able to travel to see being premiered last week, to do with the story of the Irish saint, Sonneba, who became the, the kind of national icon in Norway. So I worked with some wonderful Norwegian and Irish musicians for project that was on in Bergen last week uh, I think I had four of my songs in it then Emer Quinn's album which I know you've been great in supporting I had quite a number of songs on that with Emer um, the Cathy Jordan's album is on the way at the moment and uh, I'm also I've just finished uh, two songs with the world-renowned classical guitarist uh, John Feely uh, in Ballinasloe as well 
Uh, one is the new single from John and the uh, fabulous singer Eleanor Shanley. It's called Cancion de Amor, which I, I co-wrote with uh, a dear American friend who sadly passed away called Tim McCarrick. And then John and uh, Professor Fran O'Rourke have just recorded a song in Irish I wrote about a, a, a children's burial site which is near me here in the mountains. So that's probably going to be out in the next few months, etc., etc., and uh, lots of things. So as they say, uh, my my children say to me, um, you know, when am I going to retire? <laughs> Uh, but I still haven't. I still haven't got the, the, any sense. So I just keep going and doing stuff and enjoying it. And if you were to retire, you see, the question is, well, what would you do with yourself? <laughs> you say, well, probably do more of the same. Well, I don't know. I've changed careers so many times. I think you know. I'm very interested in astrophysics, so hmm. might have time. To, to get a degree in that, yes. So during the last six months, we've all been limited, and we mentioned about the Saint Saint Frontier. Um, how have you coped, and how have things been with you and the family while you've been uh, going through COVID? Well, yes, I don't think we all realised at the start what it was we were getting into. I left Dublin, I think, uh, around the. 13th or 14th of March and came down here uh, to, the, to the west and basically haven't been out of the house. I was twice, I think, back in Dublin for some recording. But basically, we're lucky we have big open space around us here, so we were able to get out and walk, unlike many people who are in cities and in apartments. Um, and it's basically been just my wife, Mary, and myself. We had one or two visits from the children and the grandchildren. We have five, five girls and 12 grandchildren early on. Uh, but we haven't seen uh, any of them for, you know, quite some months now. And uh, But in one sense, because of the work I do, I, I work from home, I have my piano here, I have, you know, all my rhyming dictionaries and... Uh, Roger's thesaurus and all of those sort of things around me. So it's been very productive for me uh, during this period because I haven't been distracted by travel. Uh, and what I've done is I've catalogued all my myriad of unfinished songs and have started to finish some of them and also to give some of them out to other people and say, look, would you be interested in finishing this off? And it's amazing. Uh, you know, some of these songs I'd three quarters finished and then something else comes up and I left it and forgot about it. So there have been quite a number of these songs that were just lying there and would have stayed lying there that I've given to other people to ask them to work on them, finish them, that have been finished and recorded. So I can't say it's been a bad time, personally. We're, we're very careful. Uh, you do get a dip. I miss seeing the girls and the grandchildren and having, uh, you know, one-on-one uh, -on -one basketball things with them with the basketball thing out the back. So the grandchildren try and take money off me, but I know a few old tricks since since my basketball days for, for, for Ireland. Um, so I do miss that. I, I get the dip, you know, which is sort of unexplainable at times that, that I'm sure lots of people are getting. And um, But I try and just 
bounce up and stay positive and uh, you know hope you know we'll get a vaccine hope that people stay safe and that you know I wouldn't put anybody in in danger by being careless or being out and about so um, yeah it's strange times and uh, time for reflection and uh, about the fragility of the human race and uh, I think that's not a bad thing for us to consider what is our place in the planet and you know um, the way everything is is going Uh, I'm sure if I think it's sung from a distance if one was out there from a distance looking at how we're running our affairs as a human species overall we're not we're not doing great you know there's lots of natural disasters all around the world and I think this time is making people reflect on you know what we're doing where we're going and um, some good some good might come come out of it and I'm always hopeful in the human spirit and that it will ultimately come through we're going to wrap up with that we've certainly I'm sure run out of time and I, I think we'll wrap up with the coastal Labrador and um, Brendan I want to really thank you for taking the time it's been a, an honour and a privilege to be able to chat with you Oh, well, thanks so much, Justin, and for making it so easy. I, I tend to ramble on, and uh, so you, you, you can prune me back as much as you like. Thanks so much. On the coast of Labrador, our cutfish galore. We catch them and we saw them by the score. In for guide evermore to plow the salty coast of Labrador. All on the way, all on the live long day, I will see my angel once more. She keeps me well and warm through ice and sea and storm. And I'll baby stay from her on the coast of Labrador. And when the ice is thick, with me slipper and my snake, I show him how we play those games of yours. By the battle and the north, on this is sure, now we hold for Oh, 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 o